So, something about me is I hate scary movies. Do I have anyone here that's with me on that? I just hate scary movies. But, you know, some of you need help that love scary movies. We'll talk about that later, but that, that's okay. Um, God still loves you, even if you like scary movies. But what's interesting about scary movies, it's, it's a huge industry, right? I mean, it's a huge industry, but think about some of the premises of these scary movies. They have to do with the spirit world, the devil, demon. Uh, I, I just know that I, I've only seen maybe a handful of scary movies, and a lot of it came when I was in high school, and I'm with friends, and they're like, hey, let's check out this scary movie. And I'm like, I'm not scared, and then I'm like regretting it. And I still think about those movies, and they just messed me up, you know. I'll tell you how it's messed me up is uh, when my kids were little, my daughters were little, you know, if if they get a bad dream or there's a storm coming through, you know, they'll come downstairs and then they'll come and crawl in bed with you. Parents, you know what I'm talking about? You never let your kids crawl in the bed with you? Okay. We did. I did. But here's the thing that we had to correct in their behavior, and it was simply this. One of the daughters, I don't remember which one, so, so uh, just now I only have two. You have 50% chance of getting this right. But she would come down, and she would come in, and she's so quiet, and she wouldn't wake us up. She would just stare at us. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you as a parent? Have you ever woken up with a child staring at you? I, scary movie. That's why I don't, and I had to tell them, I'm like, you come downstairs, make lots of noise, you know, kick the dog on your way in. Just let me know you're here because that freaks you out. Because something about Hollywood and kids and scary, it's just a mess of kids staring at you and be like, what do you have in your hand? You know, I want to make sure, <laughs> you know. So, but I, I wonder sometimes because of Hollywood's influence, if somehow we have either discounted in a sense, the spirit world and the devil, because we think of it as simply just a, oh, it's a Hollywood thing. It's a Hollywood invention. Or maybe we're wrongly informed and we think every time something goes wrong, well, the devil's in it or the devil's hiding behind bushes. Or So I wonder sometimes if either we, because of the influence of Hollywood, we either discount you know, when it comes to the spirit world and our understanding of the spirit world or we are wrongly informed in it. And my question is, in the 21st century, is there room for the devil and his demons? Is there room for us to understand that? Or is the devil and its demons just an archaic idea that has no space in the scientific age? More on that in a minute. But we're in a series called Hope for Exiles. And in this series, we're talking about really what's the church's response to a post-Christian society? How is the church supposed to respond? How is it supposed to thrive? I'm not just talking survive. I'm talking thrive in the midst of a post-Christian society. And we've been really kind of looking at this idea, well, how are we supposed to respond? Because for some of us, I mean, we're looking at the news. We're very concerned about what's going on in culture. And we're, we're trying to figure out, and this is what's happening with a lot of pastors and a lot of Christians. We're trying to figure out how is it that America has become a post-Christian society? And trying to connect the dots. And that's been something that I've been like really wrestling with, trying to figure out where did we go off, where did we go wrong to a nation based on Judeo-Christian values to a society that now seems to be the minority voice in this world. 
And so what, what went wrong? And so, but as we're trying to figure that out, we need to understand that the way we approach a post-Christian society is what Peter would tell us to do. He says, I urge you, dear friends, or, uh, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So Peter is telling these Christians around uh, Jerusalem and around Israel and all those di- different providences, he was saying, I want you to see yourselves as an exile. You may not physically be an exile, but you're spiritually one. You may not be a foreigner physically, but you're a spiritual foreigner because you pledge allegiance to a greater kingdom. You know, you are a part of something so much greater. And so it it helps us understand as we're talking in the series that there is hope for people that understand if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to understand that this is not your home. You know, that there is a greater hope. And though the world may go be crazy around you, there is still hope. And how do we move forward in that? But as Christians, if you move forward with this idea that I am an exile, even though I'm not, I'm not from this world and I'm in this world, but through God's grace, I'm going to make a difference for him while I'm here. If you decide to live that way, there are three headwinds or three enemies that you will come in contact with, that you will come face to face with. And for the church history, church history, almost 2,000 years, the church has seen that these three entities, these three, or they would call it the unholy trinity, has been in opposition from the very beginning. And the opposition is basically this, the devil, the flesh, and the world. The devil, the flesh, and the world. And we're breaking down this idea that the devil uses deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires, our self-centeredness, our flesh, that are normalized then in a sinful society, which creates the world. And so you have these three headwinds, these three enemies that you face constantly if you decide that I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, and not only am I going to be a follower, but I'm going to realize that I am an exile, I'm a spiritual exile here in this world. Now today, we're going to be talking about the first one, the devil. Are you excited you came to church? We're going to learn about the devil. I feel like that's a Saturday Night Live sketch somewhere. But here's the interesting thing about this idea, is the devil an archaic idea? And you're like, Justin, do you really believe in the devil? Here's the problem I have. And the problem if, as we live in a secular society, that secular theories by themselves of evil simply don't add up to a valid explanation of human behavior. That there's, we understand that people can be bad, right? We can understand that people can do some terrible things, but it, as much as we try to explain it away, even in a secular society, in a scientific world, we just can't add it up. There's just something missing in that. There's something behind the scenes that almost is leading people down some terrible Paths. So the question I want to talk about today is, is there a such thing as the devil? Is there a such thing as a devil? Now, for some of you, you're like, come on, Justin. You are, you're a well-read guy. You're educated. Do you really believe in a devil? And i got to tell you this. I'm a simple person. I have a pretty simple theology, and it simply is based on what Jesus talks about. And so... Here, here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus believed that there is a devil, and I tend to side with the guy that rose from the dead. So, that, that, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's pretty simple. But 
I, I understand that there is a lot of mystery around it. And, and I'm going to try to talk a little bit about why is there so much mystery. And first of all, we, what is the devil? Well, the devil, is, you know, is basically a title, not a name. And that's part of the mystery. Throughout the scriptures, you see him called Satan. You're called the evil one. You're called tempter, destroyer, deceiver. And even Lucifer, these are all titles. It's almost as if the Bible's like, I'm not going to even give you a name because you don't even deserve a name. So every time they talk about the devil, it's always in reference to a title. And so Jesus talks about this. And so Jesus is explaining the, the, the devil, and he does it in a very interesting way. In John chapter 8, he talks about the devil, but he's talking to a bunch of religious leaders that he's having this conversation with these religious leaders, and they, in a sense, come out and say this, this cre- pretty crazy thing that they, they basically tell Jesus, hey, we don't worry about that because our father is Abraham. So they're, in a sense, saying our faith is based on the fact that we're a part of a legacy and our lineage lines up with Abraham. And Jesus is, gives them the biggest slam you have ever seen. In John chapter 8, he says, you belong to your father. The devil. I mean, if you're ever, those are fighting words, by the way. If you call it, you are the devil's offspring, right? He says, you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. That's key. There's no truth in him. And when he lies, <laughs> it just fascinates me that Jesus said this. He speaks his native language. He says, for he is a liar and the father of, help me, lies. So what is the, the mode of how the devil tries to bring destruction? And it's through lies. But is lies really that destructive? Can lies really do damage to you, your life and my life? Is deception really that bad. I mean, y'all are agreeing with me, but I got to preach. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, y'all are with me. I get it. <laughs> Let me get to my points, all right? I, I've worked really hard. Um, <laughs> but, but he, yeah, y'all are fired up. You're like, talk about the devil more. That's great. Um, y'all are really excited about this. So here's why, and this is why deception is really bad. And I love what John Mark Homer said. He says, The ideas that we believe in our minds then let into our bodies give shape to the trajectory of our souls. And so in a sense, we we all know this, right, that it's not just what the fact that when we believe something, an idea, good or bad, if we believe in it, don't, isn't it amazing how your brain really has, we have a a physical response to an idea in our brain? Our brains are powerful things. So you encapsulate an idea and internalize it, it will show through in your physical body. And then John Mark Homer is saying it actually becomes more than just a physical reaction. It actually has a spiritual component and the trajectory of our souls. And the reason why that is, is psychologists would say it's because of mental maps. Mental maps. Have you all heard of mental maps before? Those that are psychologists do. But um, the the interesting thing about mental maps, we all have mental maps. Mental maps are a a collection of ideas. And it's how we navigate reality. 
We have these. We have these mental maps. Now, at its most elemental understanding, the difference between a truth and a lie has to do with your mental maps and its understanding of reality. See, in its most elemental understanding, a truth corresponds to reality. So then, conversely, a lie is not congruent to reality. Let me give you a little, y'all didn't know you were psychology 101 this morning. Give you a little example. The reality is I'm about three feet off the, the floor here. The stage is about three feet off the floor. If in my reality, and that's the truth, and I correspond that even though I, and you'll see this every week, I get really close to the edge. And if I ever fall off the edge, I don't think anyone would help me. You would just laugh at me. But that's okay. No, I think someone would. Someone would be like, here, here up, Justin, yeah. as I broke, broke my knee. But uh, the, the, I, I'm careful and I'm aware that I'm three feet off the ground. So at any point, I'm going to be careful knowing that. But what if I believed and I was blindfolded and someone told me, you're only three inches off the ground to the edge. So I could easily make a step. Have you ever made a step and it's a lot further than you thought? Right? You believe some kind of lie. You were thinking, this was about three. No, it's a lot. And so you can see how that could affect the way, especially if you're blindfolded, how you would adjust to your reality, believing in this lie. And here is the beauty and also what's scary about humanity. And it's like, well, Justin, it's simple enough. Believe the truth and don't believe a lie. So we could just say amen and move on and go get some chicken for dinner, right? No, it's not easy. And the reason why it's not easy is because this beautiful thing that God has given us is called an imagination. An imagination has the ability, and we all have the ability, to see something that's not currently in reality, but we want to see something come to reality. If it's a business, if it's an idea, if it's, a, it's not currently here, it's not currently a reality, but I can picture as it could be. And the problem with the imagination that can be great for vision and beautiful things like that, it can also run against you because your imagination can allow you to live in a reality that's an absolute lie. And you can find yourself. That's why an idea is such a powerful thing. And that's why deception is such a terrible thing because if you believe a lie, it's not that you believe a lie, it's the fact that you live in a lie. And you live, and the whole time you're living in this lie, you are butting up against reality. And that means you're constantly in the middle of a struggle. Because reality, you're living in something that's not reality. And you're constantly going to be struggling in this because you live this lie. It's this idea. Uh, this idea of a lie. Let me give you a few examples. It's like this. This guy who grows up, he's belittled by his father, and he has this idea that he believes this lie as in, I can only be successful, or I'm only as good as I am successful at work. Well, this is a lie. This means that he's putting all his eggs in the basket of, as long as I'm successful at work, then I feel like I'm good. Well, what happens when success at work turns south? And how many know of us that you can do as much work as you can and work hard, but sometimes there's extenuating circumstances, right? Uh, turn in the market. And then what happens to your value? What happens to this? If he believes this lie, this leads him to a life of work, workaholism, right? 
He's working all the time. And what is this lie going to do to the relationships in his life? As he says, my measure of a person or my measure and value as a man is the fact that I work and I'm successful. Well, what does that mean for his family experience if he has a family? What does it mean for his faith experience where he puts work ahead of faith? You can see how this could run uh, issues in his life. Well, what about the teenage girl? She She's going on Instagram and she sees all these different pictures of different beautiful people that are happen to be enhanced by a computer. But she doesn't know that. She just sees this and she's comparing herself to it. And so she thinks to herself this lie, I am ugly and unworthy of love. I don't compare to these people that I'm seeing on a screen. And so when she sees this, she lives. It's not the fact that she believes this lie, but it, it really is something that she lives out. She then continues to live this life where I'm ugly, so that means anyone that shows me any kind of acceptance, I'm willing to hitch my wagon to. And that's why I'm willing to be risky with certain behaviors. Why? Because I, wanna, I want someone to show me that they love me and they accept me because I am not worthy of love. You can see how dangerous this could be. This could be dangerous when it comes to the entrepreneur that started a business and it failed because of misgivings with a, with a, a partner. And then he, belives, he begins to believe this lie that everything I do will fail. So when he begins to live this lie, if you're in business, you understand you have to have risk. There has to be an element of risk to move the ball forward. But what if you start to try to create businesses with zero risk? The problem is you're never going to move the ball forward. And he lives this life that everything I do will fail, so I'm going to be safe and I'm never going to take any kind of risk. What about the middle-aged woman that she's raised by a perfectionist mom and that she believes this lie of I have to be perfect to have peace? This is terrible. Because let me ask you, can you achieve perfection? It's something that's impossible to achieve. And so this poor young, this poor middle-aged woman figures out and, th- and believes and lives this lie that I have to be perfect to, and on the other side of perfection is where I'll find peace. She's in a reality that is impossible to ever see come to fruition. And then she lives a life completely away from peace. This is a problem, isn't there? This is why the scripture deals with this. Now, I'm not saying that every time you are struggling, something means that you're dealing with a a lie. But I will say that every lie that you live, there will always be a struggle. Sometimes there's just going to be a struggle, but that's why the scriptures are so, so uh, poignant on this idea of deception. In fact, Matthew 24. In fact, Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. We see Paul would say in Colossians 2, 4. Um, He says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. He's he's instructing. He he says this again in 2 Corinthians 11.3. He says, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That there's a deception that can lead you away from Christ, that you're Living in an altered reality in your imagination makes it possible that you continue to live in a lie. So how do you combat deception? If the devil's main apparatus and his main understanding and how he, his main strategy is deception, how do we then combat deception? Well, let's just look at what Jesus did. Matthew chapter 4, I love this. And I've preached on this several different times. So I'm not going to go into details, but 
I want to kind of look at it from a 10,000-foot level. And so you'll see what I'm talking about. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the, help me. So he believes that there's one. He interacted with the, the, the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then, tempt, then the tempter, different title, uh, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now what's Jesus' reaction? He says this. Jesus answered, help me with these words. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan brings in a deception. Jesus brings in the scripture. Verse 5. When the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Verse 6. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Now, the devil is also using the scripture. He says, for it is written, the devil says, well, I'm going to use this tactic too. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Then Jesus answered, I am the living word of God. Can you imagine that? You're trying to argue the word of God with the living word of God dumb. (laughs) Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Hmm. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Isn't that interesting? He's trying to give something he doesn't even own. That's a common thing, isn't it? And then Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. And see this different terminology, different titles he's using. And again, he says, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. And we see the power of God spoken through combating the lies through truth. But the, the, the way to combat deception is with the truth. And we have the spoken word of God in our laps or on our phones. It's called the scriptures. It's a powerful thing. But here's an interesting connection here. Deception is always seems to be tied to temptation. And I love it like this, to say it like this. Deception is tied to temptation. Temptation is to slavery to sin. And it's the truth that will set you free. This is a core conviction in Jesus' teaching, the New Testament writers. It's this core conviction of the way you defend and combat against deception is with truth. The way you combat the truth, the way you, but here's the thing. If that's it, if that's all we needed to do is know the truth, it's, it's more than that. Because here's the question. How do you know if you are living in a lie? Or you're living toward a lie, living in an altered reality. How do you know? Again, Jesus would say it in this in John chapter 8. He says, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will, help me, set you free. So for the next few moments, I want to talk about how do we interact with the scriptures? Because even the devil knows the scriptures. I mean, he quoted it to Jesus. Because I've seen Christians actually use the scripture to justify their own sinful, sometimes sinful 
behavior. So how do you know? Because our imaginations are pretty powerful. How do you know and how do you make sure you do this? And I think it, it starts with a posture for studying the scriptures. I don't think it's just enough just to read the scriptures because I hear people all the time using the scripture and misusing it. And we see this, in fact, uh, political season's coming up. And aren't you excited about that? All right. Lots of commercials. Fun. You see this with politicians. They twist the Constitution to say what they want it to say. It's amazing. And so that's why we need to have a posture. Not only do we need to read the scriptures, but we need to have a certain posture in engaging the scriptures. And the first posture I think we need to have when we study the scripture is humility, right? We need to have a sense of humility. And the why we need to have a sense of humility is because we all have this next problem. It's called confirmation bias. Have you heard that before? It's basically, confirmation bias is simply this, that when I read something, I read into it from my viewpoint. So everything that I read only backs up my viewpoint. And it, that's why I, that's why when, if politically you watch certain news organizations and you shun other news organizations is because confirmation bias is playing into that, right? There's no kind of middle ground anymore. And so the same is true, whether you're reading a, a document, you know, for, for the company, or if it's even reading the scripture, that we could bring in our view, and then when we come across a scripture, it's only, we see the scripture, we're like, we highlight it, we're like, oh, I'm going to show my wife this scripture. <laughs> right? So we look into the Bible, our view and it doesn't change anything in us, even though the scripture's not saying that, because we don't, we, this is the thing. If you read in big paragraphs, it's hard to do. But when you take just little portions of scripture, it's amazing what you can make the Bible say to fit your whatever you want it to fit. It's amazing to do that. That's why you have to approach the scripture with humility. Let me give you a, a little example. Uh, and so, no, I'm not using any example of anyone in here. Okay, so this is something completely made up. Okay. But an example of a couple fighting, all right? A couple fighting. He's working late hours at work. She has a job, but she also has a lot of hobbies that she's a part of. And so when he gets home from work, she's already doing stuff with, with her friends and having some great time with, with doing some awesome hobbies. And there's a fight between this couple. He's like, I, you know, I work late, and I want to be able to be, spend time with you, but you're always gone doing stuff, right? This has never happened in a home, right? And she says, well, if you didn't work so late, then we would have time. And I could still do the fun stuff that I want to do. And so, you know, he looks through the Bible and, in fact, maybe even does, uh, picks up a message that I've preached maybe before. And he finds this scripture called Ephesians 5.22. And he says, honey, 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 I have read the scripture and it is clear. Don't argue with me. It's the Bible. He says, what? He says, this is, this is Paul. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. So, hey, that means you need to drop those hobbies. We need to spend time. Submit. But she's, but she's like, oh. She goes back in there and starts researching. She also pulls up a message of mine. She goes, oh, oh I found one too. Ephesians 5.25, uh-huh, same chapter. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Honey, you're not giving. You're staying at the job. And if you would give, I don't feel very much loved working late. What's happened? They, they're playing Bible darts is what they're playing, right? They're using the scripture and they miss the point. They miss and they skipped over probably the most important verse of that whole chapter, and that is Ephesians 5.21 that says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But it's, again, it's easy, to, but if, you're, if you don't approach the scripture with humility, you will try to find yourself and allow the scripture to try to, or not allow the scripture, but try to force the scripture to fit your uh, behavior instead of allowing your behavior to be confronted with the scripture. And being, but you have to have humility. You have to have hands open and say, God, I'm willing to change. Let your truth change me from the inside out. So the next thing, the next posture we need to have is curiosity. I think the curiosity of let the truth lead you where the truth needs to lead you at any cost. That, God, I'm willing to change whatever I need to change. And I want to be led by your truth. I don't want to fit my own agenda. I don't want to be led by feelings. Can I say that again? I don't want to be led by feelings. I want to be led by your truth. I don't care what culture says. I don't care what it is. Lord, I want, to be, I want to be someone that reflects who you want me to be. And I want to, have the, I want to have the curiosity to let the truth take me wherever, no matter the cost. And number three, a posture for scripture, I think is courage. When you're confronted with the truth, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to be able to be changed? Are you going to be willing to change? Or are you going to let culture or feelings dictate how you live? Again, the key here. And the key, I think, in all this is not only should we have the posture, but a key thing is this. The key is not just to think about the Scripture, but to think Scripture. This is how you combat lies. It's not just thinking about the Scripture, but actually thinking Scripture. Let me give you kind of an example of what I'm talking about. Let's, let's go back to some of our examples earlier as it says, the, the, for the guy who's thinking as, as, as he kind of grew up in this environment where it's all about performance and he feels like everything of his value is based on performance. Well, it's not just enough to think about the scripture. We need to actually think scripture to allow the scripture to combat just like Jesus did. When he was confronted with deception, what did he use? The scripture. And he knew it. He understood it. And so he was using this to combat the deception. For, so for my guy here, the, the guy that is thinking it's all about value is based on my performance and my success is all about, about that, then the scripture needs to confront him with this, this lie that he's living with the truth in Philippians 1.6, that being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus that the work that Jesus is doing in your life is so much greater than any work outside of it and so we need to my my value comes from what Jesus is doing inside of me more than anything that I do outside of me and combating this lie combating this altered reality and just break through and allow that light and truth to shine in this situation what about our poor teenage girl that's thinking I'm ugly. 
I'm unworthy of love. And she's confronting these things and she's willing to be a little bit risky with behavior because she's getting attention when she's risky with her behavior. But the truth is this. We find the truth in Psalms 139, 14. It says, I praise you. And the psalmist says, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. That my value is not tied to what people are saying about me. That God has made me with intrinsic value. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I am not an accident. God doesn't make accidents. You may not have been planned, but God had a plan. God has a plan for your life. And you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And, And we don't... We, we sometimes find ourselves in the lie, and, and we live in this lie, but we need the scripture to kind of be that, that, that rope to pull us out of that. We also see maybe this one, the, the poor middle-aged woman that's, that feels like she has to be perfect to have peace, and it's all about trying to find that peace, but it's on the other side of perfection. And I love what combating this lie with what John 14, 27, what Jesus said. He says, peace, I leave with you. My peace I give you. Wait, 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 wait. There's a peace that I can receive that I don't have to work for. That there's a peace that when I align myself with Jesus and align myself with him, that there is a peace on the side in the midst of whatever I do or say, that there can be peace when I'm aligning with him. He says, I do this. I, I do not give you this as the world gives. But do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. A peace on this, that I can have peace even though I'm not perfect. And there's this other lie. And I just put this one in here because I think we all need this one. The lie. Buying this will make me happy. Right? We all do that, don't we? That's why we have buyer's remorse. Right? This, now, if you're going to buy something, great. It's just stuff. It's not going to be the source of your happiness, right? It's just, it's, so buying this will, will make me happy. Well, Hebrews 13.5 combats it. He says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content. Oh, I think I need to circle that a couple of times. With what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And again, the key, the key here is not just to think about the scripture, but to literally think the scripture. So I guess my question to you is, do you have a plan to incorporate the scripture into your life? Now, this is something we've talked a lot about at the church, but do you have a plan? And I imagine some of you do. And it's something like, well, I do have a plan. I'm not right now operating in that plan, you know. Um, And it may be. Let's be honest, maybe it's a little laziness, or maybe it's just not intention, or maybe I get busy. I love what Corey Tim Boom said. She says, if the devil can't tempt you, he'll make you busy. I I thought, wow, Corey, I don't know if I agree that the devil will make you busy, because we do really good on our own on that. But but it's interesting that if the fact that we find ourselves so busy, so do you have a plan to incorporate? And maybe a lot of you do. You have a plan. Maybe you're just not operating that plan. But for some of you in here, and this is who I really want to talk to, you don't really have a plan. In fact, you're a little freaked out by the Bible. You're like, well, Justin, I tried to read the Bible, and I got more scared because I started in Revelation, and someone told me not to. But I said, oh, I'm curious. And then I had nightmares for three weeks, and then I'm like, where do I go from here? 
you know, how do I do that? And Justin, every time I read the Bible, I'm confused. I'm like, well, what's going on here? And I need context. And, and like, I understand when you're talking about it, but when I'm reading it on my own, I, I just don't get it. So we have something for you if that's you. Um, in fact, we've been, we did this. In fact, we released this class this year. It's called Bible for Grownups. And this is, oh, that's awesome. Some people liked it. Uh, I'm glad no one booed. That would have been weird, you know. Boo, you know. Uh, this is a Bible for grown-ups, but here's the thing what we did is we also created this on YouTube. So uh, we don't have the class available in person uh, because we're doing other classes right now. But this is a class that if you're like, Justin, I really need, maybe this is your first step. And we have workbooks available uh, for this class, and you can find it on YouTube. In fact, if you have the app of the church, someone just showed me this. Isn't it awesome? I learned stuff about this church, and I'm the pastor of this church. Uh, someone showed me on the, on the app, you can literally do the classes off the app. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, technology is great. Um, and I'm the pastor. So, uh, but here's the thing. This is, uh, if we'll go back to the slide he, there's also a workbook that goes with it, and we have some workbooks at the group's corner. If you're like, Justin, I'm really in, you know, I'm just like, uh, I don't, I'm just intimidated by the Bible. This is a great four-session class that you can do, and we've got the workbooks for you, to kind of help you start that journey of having the right posture so that you can read the scriptures uh, in, in, in proper context and in rightly interpret that scripture for your life. And I think it's really important for that. So we make that available to you uh, at the group's corner for the books, and you can also go on uh, YouTube, and, and that's kind of great, or using the app. But again, it comes down to this, and it's the next slide, is we combat deception with a steady diet of truth. Here's just a scary thought, and I'll leave you with this. Maybe some of us are living into a lie right now. And, and, and maybe, and you don't even know it. It's only through the steady diet of truth that we will actually be pulled out of these deceptions. Because culture is all about itself, and people are self-centered and all about themselves, and it feeds into that self-centeredness. But at the same time, we're constantly struggling. And could this be, I'm not saying for everyone, but could this be for some of us, that's why you're struggling right now. It's because you're going against reality. And you need the truth of God's word to pull you into his reality. And we'll talk more about that next week. So can we stand up to our feet? I want to pray for you as you go. Dear Heavenly Father, I love the fact that you have said throughout the scriptures, there is hope for us exiles. And though we find ourselves in a world that doesn't seem friendly and, and does not heed to the value systems that maybe we live out our value systems, the values of the kingdom, Lord, you've called us to be light in a dark world. And so, Lord, we want to live this way. But it's so easy, and I've seen it in my own life, to attach myself to something, an idea that's actually not even true. That's a lie something I believe about myself or something I believe about others. And, Lord, only through your truth can that combat the lie in my life. So may we have, may we have the courage and may we have the intentionality of having a steady diet of your truth incorporated into our life. We need something to be absolute in our life. We need something to be the foundation. And thank you that you gave us the scriptures, that we have your words 
on pages so that we can always put our life against the plumb line of the truth of God's word. Help us in this pursuit. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. We'll see you next week for part three of Hope for Exiles.